Are you Potter and family? Search hashtag Potter and family on Twitter to find a wide variety of great podcasts, including this one. Part of the Rewatching Good TV Network. It's Ragnar Cast, a Vikings podcast. And now here's your host, Matt Murdick. And welcome to RagnarCast, episode 2 of the podcast. We cover Vikings on the History Channel. And this week we are covering season 4, episode 2, Kill the Queen. Written by Michael Hurst. Directed by Kieran Donnelly. It first aired on February 25th of 2016 and was viewed by an estimated 2.02 million viewers. My name is Matt Murdock and I'm from RagnarCast.wordpress.com. That is your one-stop shop for everything this podcast. Back episodes, all of the contact information, and podcatcher links. And if you would take the time, please, to leave me a written review on whatever podcatcher you use, be that iTunes or Stitcher or wherever you're getting this podcast, if you could leave me a written review, because that does help me stay more noticeable among all of the other Vikings podcasts that are out there. And I would like to take the time to thank former Lost Addict in the UK iTunes store for their review. And just like I thanked former Lost Addict right there, if you leave a written review on your podcatcher, especially iTunes or Stitcher, then I will definitely thank you in this spot, just like I did former Lost Addict from the UK iTunes store. Thank you very much. I think that is our friend at CutePoison10 on Twitter. So thank you very much for doing so, uh, taking the time, the extra effort to reach out for the podcast and, and leave a review. If you want to contact me with any feedback, because we do have a lot of segments that I would love for people to participate in, then you can feel free to send an email to ragnarcast at gmail.com, or you can tweet at ragnarcast, or you can leave a voicemail by calling 314-669-1840. In case you don't know how to spell Ragnar, it's R-A-G-N-A-R, cast, at gmail.com, or at R-A-G-N-A-R, cast, on Twitter. And just a quick spoiler alert, this is going to cover the most recent episode of Vikings on the History Channel and anything that led up to that. So if you're not caught up with the series and you don't want to be spoiled, then come back and listen when you are caught up. I'll still be here. The podcast will still be here. That's why we keep the back episodes at ragnarcast.wordpress.com. Enough about the podcast. Every week, this is one of those sections. I didn't get any feedback for this this week. So again, I had to just kind of choose on my own. We call them Ragnarisms. I only chose one quote from the episode this week. That's what it is. Just choose your favorite quote and tweet it at me or send me an email or leave it on a voicemail. Um, just what your favorite quote of the episode was and we'll string them together right here up front. 
My favorite quote from this week's episode is Ragnar taunting Floki when he's recaptured. Here's that for you. A great Floki. Captured by mere children. Why didn't the gods protect you? Why didn't they hide you better from such innocent eyes? Could it be that the gods were not interested in saving him because they are angry at you? Is there anything you want to say to that? I said it all. You made me suffer, and now I shall make you suffer. I've got such a wonderful punishment for you. You probably appreciate it too, see? I borrowed it from the gods. It's very imaginative, and it goes on, and on, and on, and on. Nothing heroic. No chance to impress the gods. Pretty much says it all as far as Ragnar and Floki are concerned, at least from a public perspective. We'll be talking about that next in our discussion of the episode. And as somebody who used to podcast about the television show Game of Thrones and continues to podcast about the A Song of Ice and Fire book series, uh, saw lots of tweets about the phrase winter is coming uh, from Ragnar to Helga when he was giving her the food. Um, people are calling Ragnar a Stark from Game of Thrones or from the A Song of Ice and Fire series by George R. R. Martin. I didn't see quite as many tweets from A Song of Ice and Fire people about the other similarity to George R. R. Martin's book, A, a Clash of Kings. Uh, from, that's basically what season two of Game of Thrones was based on. Uh, there is in the book... A Clash of Kings, uh, a battle, the Battle of Blackwater, which was depicted on the television show, but done a little bit differently in the television show because in the television show, Tyrion Lannister basically attacks the boats directly out in the bay with wildfire, whereas in the books, Tyrion kind of lets them come up to the river and into the river, uh, coming up to King's Landing, and then he springs a chain that he's been having made throughout the whole course of the book that everybody wonders what the chain is about. And it's exactly kind of like the chain that we saw Rolo put up uh, across the two forts. So there was another kind of comparison for Game of Thrones fans, or at least a Song of Ice and Fire fans. Like I said, it wasn't in the television show. Not sure why they didn't do that. Um, But when I saw Rolo pull the chain up to stop the boats, I immediately started thinking, about this scene from A Clash of Kings. And it makes me think that um, it must be something that actually happened in like uh, medieval history because George R. R. Martin takes a lot of his inspiration from actual events in medieval history. So uh, the fact that Vikings is citing this, and we know that Vikings is kind of a historically based show, even though um, some of the events have been changed or some of the people have been changed 
um, it, it still is very much a, a historical piece. And so George normally taking from periods of history like this uh, for some of his story points, um, it must have actually happened. So if you know what event or possibly maybe this was just a common kind of strategy um, for cities that were along rivers or something like that. But if you know anything about this, feel free to contact me and, and inform me as to what George's inspiration might be, uh, how it might be related to this Viking story. Uh, but yeah, not just one A Song of Ice and Fire reference in this particular episode, but two. And that will kind of stop my Game of Thrones comparisons with this show, because they really are two different kinds of shows. Um, I'm not sure that I will have quite as much to say about this episode as I did for episode one. For for one thing, I mean, while the Bjorn stuff was very interesting, I don't exactly know what to say about it. I mean, it's like, yay, Bjorn really overcame that five-foot snowdrift well. Or, hey, Bjorn knows how to fish and how to break fish's jaws. Um, I guess what you can say is you have to really admire his fortitude because it cannot be easy walking through thick snow like that. And it would have been kind of a cheat to just see him at the cabin the next time that we saw him. So having that plus the implication that time is passing um, and that he might have traveled quite a distance. He might be quite a ways away from Kattegat. So that might uh, be an indication for something. But what I found most important about the Bjorn sequences actually was at the very end when he's eating the fish and you hear that wolf howl at the end of his last scene. Um, this is two episodes now with a wolf because Ragnar's vision of Valhalla we had a wolf sitting on a rock there, and now we hear one in the distance with Bjorn, and it definitely makes me think that Ragnar's visions and wolves, possibly Fenrir, are tied together. And they're also apparently pretty accurate, um, which we'll get to more about Ragnar, but as far as where it concerns Bjorn, uh, we saw that scene with Bjorn, and since we've confirmed that Ragnar's visions are accurate um, by a scene later on in Kattegat, then we have to worry about Bjorn. He's doing all this thing, basically helping his self to, to have more confidence and to prove his father wrong. And uh, will it all be for naught? We will have to see. Again, we'll talk about more about that uh, when I get to uh, the Ragnar stuff. And there is no Lagatha in this episode. And that's definitely a minus for me. Um, so I guess I'll just cover the other three storylines separately from one each other and all at once rather than chronologically. So let's, let's go to Paris. I already mentioned that little bit about Rolo with, with him and, and Roland and Odo and the plans to fortify Paris. And I mentioned last week that I wondered if Rolo was still working for Ragnar from the inside, despite having to make that terrible sacrifice of killing all those people. Um, but when he gives Odo and, and Roland these ideas, that basically takes the defense out of his hands. Once these things are built, and if they're manned, I don't see how he could prevent them from being used. And um, it seems to me that they would be pretty effective. And yet, there's still part of me 
And, and it's the absolutely crazy side of me, I guess. But I am. there's still part of me that thinks that Rolo is working for Ragnar from the inside. And all logic says to discard that. So even if it is the case that he has gone total dark side and is total anti-Viking now, um, you also have to wonder that reaction, Clive's great face that he made to uh, the react to the fact that uh, Gisla started laughing, probably because it actually was funny at first, because that scene was kind of funny at first. But that look, he, he actually looked hurt, and she poured it on. Uh, Gisla really poured it on. She got her handmaidens to start laughing, too. It was, it was one of those things where it was done purposely to hurt him. And I wonder if that kind of frustration might eventually work on Rolo, and he might turn back to the good side if he has turned to the dark side. And I, I don't think there's any reason for most people to think that he hasn't turned to the dark side. Um, I'm just kind of holding out hope because there are moments like this where Rolo is so sympathetic. And I guess it's really kind of frustrating to me that I do feel bad for Rolo because of what Gisla's doing. Uh, he is changing his look. He's doing everything. And it's obvious that he absolutely hates it. And then she treats him like this. And the scene was hilarious. Rolo looked ridiculous, and some people, I'm sure, will say he had this coming for what he did in the episode, in a good treason episode. But for some reason, and and this is probably the only show that I can com, com, really compare Vikings to, the Vikings to me are the sons of anarchy. They are that bike group because those guys in Sons of Anarchy do horrific things terrible things to others and to each other and yet you know when it is others from the outside coming in on them trying to hurt the group then if the group gets hurt i hurt for that group the sons of anarchy i hurt for the biker group uh and then i i'm i have no problem rooting for them in the next minute when they go to get revenge and so I'm kind of the same way about Vikings, especially our main characters of Vikings like Rolo and Ragnar and, and Floki. I deplore what they do sometimes. I absolutely hate it. It's unforgivable, some of the terrible things that they do. And yet, when they are threatened by something that is outside of their own culture, then I tend to back them up despite that. And... I guess Sons of Anarchy and Vikings are the only two shows that I've really experienced where it is okay to really hate and really like or really feel sympathy for a single character within moments of each other or sometimes even at the same time. Of course, maybe I just haven't watched enough TV, but uh, it's hard for me to not at least feel a little bit of sympathy for Rolo, despite the fact that I still hate him for what he did last week and what it feels like he's continuing to do. Um, I'm hoping against hope that this is some kind of big ruse so that I can, you know, feel justified later on for feeling 
bad for Rolo just because a girl laughed at him. It's just crazy how this show can make you feel. Uh, and that's one of the reasons that I love it so much. But I, I guess that's enough about Rolo in Paris. There's more Paris stuff. Let's talk about Therese because at very least why she is subjecting herself to like Odo's sick, sick whims. Um, well, I, I guess I, I really shouldn't shun lifestyles for anyone who actually might enjoy that kind of thing. Um, to me, uh, sorry, to me, these are sick, sick, sick whims that Odo has to get his rocks off or whatever. It just doesn't make any sense to me. But if, if you're into that whole kind of thing, the, the bondage or the, the whipping or whatever, uh, that, that's your choice. That's your prerogative. I'm just saying it's sick to me personally. I could never do that. I just couldn't. Um, anyway, trying to get back to uh, the whole Odo thing. I mean, the fact that she's, that Therese is trying to get Odo to, I guess, betray himself or say treasonous things, it seems to me to be better reasoning for what she's subjecting herself to rather than just having those scenes we had last year and even the implication this year for the sake of shock value. And I'll be honest, that's where, when I saw those scenes last year, I, I, I had really put it in that kind of place. I was like, oh, they must need ratings. They must need people to talk about this. Um, I was also in a very weird place about television in general and, and what I felt like the motivations of writers were. But at least here, there's a reasoning why Therese will put up with it. And I'm assuming that we're supposed to believe now that this Roland who was in the same room with Rolo and Odo, uh, that he is actually the one that is Teresa's husband. I don't see how they could, unless, you know, she's off having this thing where she's getting beat up by Odo and then she's having an affair with Roland. Um, if Roland is not her husband, then, uh, boy, her husband's a poor guy uh, if she'll take both of those things. Um, but I really don't understand Roland's game here. I mean, I do understand him wanting to get Odo out of any kind of power. That makes perfect sense. But once he does that, how does that help Roland and Therese? What, what is their goal here? Um, is their goal merely to get rid of Odo? Is there some kind of personal grudge or, or just the fact that Odo is into this kind of thing um, that makes them want to get rid of him? If you can explain to me why they're going to this trouble to get Odo out of there, um, cause it, it's an awful lot of sacrifice on Teresa's part. Um, if you have any idea about that, then feel free to e email me again, R-A-G-N-A-R-Cast at gmail.com, or you can tweet at RagnarCast, or you can call 314-669-1840. And I guess the other thing to ask is, does Odo kind of have a sense of what's going on? Is he playing the game back on top of her? And you could even ask, is Therese playing both sides against the middle? Uh, perhaps pitting Roland and Odo against each other uh, and, and just kind of like riding the winning horse is her game plan. Um, maybe I'm looking, again, for, for too many double-double crosses, but when it's early on in a season of Vikings, uh, I treat everything as a possible red herring, I guess. But if you do have any thoughts about any of that, feel free 
to contact me and I'll share your thoughts with the rest of our listeners. I don't really know if there's anything else to say about Paris itself, so let's move on to all things on the island, like Wessex and Mercia. And I just, right off the bat, I gotta, I gotta say, you have to love the Franks and their medieval wine-tasting ways, right? I mean, you don't even have a bucket to spit into uh, in these days. You just spit in the floor. <laughs> that was funny. Uh, and I guess I should go from there to, to the whole Eckbert and, and Judith thing because of the monk. Um, first off, when Eckbert first sent Aethelwulf away, um, Judith was really standing up to him uh, until he kind of drew her into that whole freedom speech trap. Does Judith know that he's trying to manipulate her? And is she possibly playing her own game? Again, I'm looking at double-double crosses here, but I wouldn't exactly know how. Maybe in the fact, maybe she's trying to double-cross him in a way that the fact that Eckbert more or less has to twist that bishop's arm to convince uh, Prudentius that it's okay to teach illumination to Judith. I mean, that might show that Eckbert is not acting in ordinance with the church, maybe possibly causing him to have to relinquish power. That would seem to be the only play that I would think Judith would have in going down this path. Um, I did like the way that Judith stood up for herself in the beginning, but again, unless she is playing her own game here and kind of feigning uh, really getting into all of this, then by the end, all of her desire for, for freedom really kind of seems to have won out, and, and Eckbert seems to have her right where he wants her. But the thing I can't figure out is where does he want her exactly? I mean, does he wish to destroy her? Does he merely wish to better and her be willing at his every whim? Um, I know that he would have interest in her son, naturally. He would also have interest in Quintherith's son, for that matter, but, um, and, and he even kind of demonstrates that in this episode, uh, but more on that in a moment. Uh, I can't figure out what Eckbert's long game for Judith truly is. And the other thing I think about is, you know, with this whole Prudentious thing, how's Aethelwulf going to take all of this? I mean, obviously, Judith wanted Prudentius to be Athelstan very badly when she first saw him. Um, I mean, will the whole idea of Judith learning to do what Athelstan uh, was doing for for King Eckbert, will that be too much for Aethelwulf? I mean, maybe that is Eckbert's plan, is to simply break them up. I mean, it, it seems a shame because actually at the beginning of this episode, Aethelwulf and Judith seem at least civil to each other, uh, a lot more than they were last season, right? Where she was getting ears cut off and everything. Um, and, and given his final words before he rides off to save Quin, Quinthrith, I, I, I felt like that they, their relationship is a little more stable than it was before. So is that Eckbert's plan? I, I have no idea um, what's going on there. As far as this plan with Judith, it could just merely be a seduction thing. Let me know what you think about that. But uh, the whole thing about Aethelwulf riding off to, you know, save uh, Quinthrith, 
Uh, that takes us to the other side of the English story. And uh, Aethelwulf and, and Eckbert's just starting right off at the beginning of that, his speech to the nobles to get the men ready for war, that seemed a little staged to me. Like each of them playing their part in order to get the nobles to comply willingly uh, to, to give them more men rather than, than by some kind of decree or order. And then you have the scouts coming back in boxes. That was somewhat gross. And that would probably be an appropriate motivator for any nobles who were straggling behind. But it seems like most of them had given men over already because they were being trained when, when the scouts' heads arrived. But I have to say, it, it, it seems awfully convenient that all of this happens. The whole getting more men... The whole now just one scout happens to survive. All of the rest of them got beheaded, but he managed to survive and have the accurate place where Quinthrith was located. I mean, that, that just once again, I'm going off on a conspiracy theorist tangent, but is it possible that the whole thing was staged, perhaps by Quinthrith and by um, Eckbert in order to get more people to fight. I mean, remember, Eckbert's real goal is domination of the entire island, and I guess maybe even the world someday, as he sees it. But you got to have an army to do that. And you, you got to start with the army you got, and then you can get more people as you go along. So I just can't help but uh, for a second be all conspiracy theorist guy and, and ask if... This was set up simply to build an army so that other places can be taken. Okay, off that tangent, let's, let's get back to the meat of what actually happened, since we don't, since I'm just speculating there. Um, so once the men are, are ready to go and, and take the tower, uh, and they try, the whole fight itself, I have to say, was way too long. Um, it was just too long. The fight to free Quinrith was just way too long and and while it served well with kind of the punchline she gave Aethelwulf of you know what took you so long while it was actually happening I was sitting there going like come on man this fight's gone past exciting and, it, and it's now moved into the boring category there is a line somewhere for me where once you move that past that line then it just becomes uninteresting and it actually ruins what was exciting about it before um, for me, but and and seriously, it was almost like Hurst when he wrote the script, he wrote something like, and they have a fight that goes for a really really long time, and then he put that line in there for Quinthrith, and then you have Donnelly, you know, he's pacing out the other scenes that Hurst has written, and then he looks and he says, whoa, wait a minute, I'm gonna have to film this fight scene for how long in order to get the episode to the length that History Channel wants it? I mean. Parts of the battle were fine. They were great. But I, I was, the, the length of it uh, just kind of defeated uh, my interest in those points. Not so much the in the tower stuff, though, because our fantastically crazy and wonderful Queen of Mercia is one badass. Uh, she is just amazing. And uh, I, I love Amy Bailey. Um, even though it did take Aethelwulf to finally kind of get in there and deliver the final blow to save her, Amy Bailey, just when Quinthrith was fighting for her child, 
the ferocity, crazy ferocity, desperation, everything. It was just super fantastic. Amy Bailey just absolutely made it. I mean, if there was anything that helped me get through the fact that we didn't have Lagatha this week, it was the fact that we got Quinrith in place of her. Uh, and, uh, man, that was just, wow. I loved it. Uh, the whole thing that I truly do hate about the whole mission, though, is that it really wouldn't have mattered to Eckbert if Quinrith herself had been killed. He's really only interested in Magnus. As I kind of mentioned before, he has an interest in Judith's son. He has an interest in Quinrith's son. Um, Magnus must be saved at all costs to him, which, yes, good to save an innocent child, if only that actually was the main reason that Eckbert said that to Aethelwulf. Um, but that, you know, that's not the case. It's just because of his interest in Magnus. Um, but for the most part, I do have to say, I, I really enjoyed all of the, uh, I'm calling it the island stuff, the, the, the island of England. <laughs> um, even if my, in my own opinion, the battle was too long, it was still all really good. So really enjoyed that. And there's a nice tie-in throughout this kind of otherwise all-over-the-map episode between all of the storylines. That is sending your son off to kind of fulfill this mission because you've got Bjorn off trying to prove himself to Ragnar. You've got Eckbert sending Aethelwulf off to save Quinthrith. And then back at Cattlecat, you have Ube and his brother, and they're on this mission on behalf of their still very physically weakened father, Ragnar, to recapture Floki. And the pedigree of Ube is actually something pretty awesome when you consider his lineage being Aslog and Ragnar. And I love that they're demonstrating his growing kind of personal confidence, as well as getting confidence, you know, from the group that he's directing. He, he is definitely becoming a leader during this, and that's something you expect um, when historically you get accounts of how great a Viking Ube was. So um, it's good that they're having him take these kind of missions on at such a young age. Love that. Um, I will also say that during the chase sequences with Floki, uh, there were some absolutely beautiful shots, like as... Floki was scampering over all those huge rocks and the shots of the posse kind of doing the same or chasing them in different places. It not it nice that there are still places on this planet that film scouts can locate where Mother Nature can absolutely steal the scene away from actors or action. And this show does that really well. Some of the shots just of the environment are amazing on this show. And this chase sequence uh, was no exception to that. Just fantastic. I don't know where that was shot, but I want to visit there. I just want to take a picture of it. I want to say that I was standing there and, and take a picture of it. Now, this will probably seem weird to some of you, but there was a shot during the chase sequence where Floki's kind of standing on top of a, a ledge uh, there's a waterfall, and he's trying to grab some fish, and that's as the hunters are, are getting closer. They're closing in. When I saw that shot, I screamed out, Floki is Gollum! I shouted that at the TV screen. Because even though I'm sure it wasn't intentional, 
the way that was shot, it reminded me a lot of the shot in uh, Two Towers with Gollum trying to catch a fish and um, Sam and, and Frodo talking uh, and uh, him just standing near the waterfall's edge once he catches the fish. I loved that. Uh, I loved that shot. Like I said, I just shouted out, Floki is Gollum on the screen. Um, but, I, you know, again, that's just me. I know I'm weird. Uh, and like I said, I'm sure it wasn't intentional, but it, it certainly looked, reminded me of that shot from Two Towers. I, I suppose I should actually backtrack now to how Floki got free in the first place. Because the night that Floki escapes, we do see Helga there hiding. But when Ragnar confronts her about it, whether she helped free him or not, she pretty smartly neither confirms nor denies helping Floki escape. Ragnar, I think he believes that she did help, and he basically forgives her. He even admires her for helping Floki escape. But I want to ask you guys, is there anyone out there who thinks that she did not help Floki escape? I mean, she did walk away from him when he asked for help to escape last week. But I don't know if that was to cover up the fact that she was going to help him or if she just happened to be in the area when he did escape and then was hiding because uh, she knew she would be implicated right away. And like I said, here in the conversation with Ragnar, it seems that, you know, he thinks that she helped him and he doesn't blame her. But he also asserts that Floki only loves himself and that no one else should know that better than Helga herself. And she almost seems to acknowledge that in a way uh, after he says it. But either way, that particular scene between Ragnar and Helga really got me because Ragnar seems to hold no ill will toward her. Um, and that's even if he does hold ill will towards Floki himself. And he offers Helga and Angraboda food, which is something they need. It seems like they're living in this kind of like, I don't know, almost like a natural kind of shelter. Why don't they just go home? I guess because Floki is under arrest. I guess that's why she's stuck there at Katakat and, and why they have no real possessions there. Um, so I was really moved that Ragnar, despite what she may have done, um, didn't really hold her to blame for it and even wanted to help by giving food. Now, there's some questions about that food, which we'll get to uh, towards the end uh, of my discussion of this episode. But I, I don't know. It's just stuff like this where Ragnar can just seemingly be so uh, ill-willed towards Floki himself, yet care for his family, for Floki's family. It's another one of those things that just makes Ragnar so complex and intriguing. Because when Floki is returned to Kattegat by Ube, I mean, Ragnar flat out taunts Floki with the phrases of, you know, like being captured by children, Floki angering the gods. And I wonder if that is actually the point. Like Ragnar needs an admission from Floki that he did not do it merely because the gods told him to kill Athelstan. And I've actually subscribed 
to the fact myself that Floki killed Athelstan for reasons than just the gods told him. I think he killed him. He killed Athelstan for himself just as much, if not more than for the gods. I think it is jealousy, but why does Ragnar need that jealousy admission? Is it because of Ragnar's own personal ego? Is it political? Is it about the fact that Floki does not trust Ragnar enough to say? Because what Ragnar does to Aslog while saying, you know, that it's more than just about killing a Christian, it's about loyalty and trust when he strikes her so brutally. That's one of those moments where you just hate Ragnar. He should never, ever do that. As ingrained in the culture as it may be or not, Ragnar is the one person who should never, ever strike a woman. Uh, but for whatever reason, um, the moment that I hated Ragnar, it kind of paled in comparison to moments where he gave Helga and Angraboda food or when he helped to bury Angraboda. I, I really don't know what that says about me. I'm, I mean, I'm sure it's not healthy that I would think that way, that I wouldn't be as moved by the fact that he struck a woman as that he helped two others. But while I can say that I would never, ever condone for anybody else what Ragnar did to Aslog, I have to admit that on an emotional level, I was not as affected by this clearly sick outburst as I was emotionally affected by the other stuff that he did in this episode. The other thing that I think this moment does prove, at least as far as when Ragnar strikes Aslog, it proves that those visions are real, like I mentioned before when we were talking about Bjorn. Her going to that floor like that was the exact shot that we saw in one of his visions at the gates of Valhalla. And I, I think that as Ragnar is kind of looking down at her before she gets back up, I think that you see that register on his face as well. He realizes that they're real. He realizes that he just caused what he saw. And that's why when she stands up and faces off with him, he simply says, you know, loyalty and trust is something you can't understand, more or less, because he's realizing that everything he's seen is true. He knows that she wants his power. Now, the question becomes, are any of these things negotiable or changeable? I mean, this one happened exactly the way he saw it, and it happened really without warning. It's not like he had time to think about it. He didn't pay attention to the color of her dress and compare it to the vision. That wasn't even in his mind. He didn't even realize that he had actually fulfilled his own prophecy until after he'd done it. So, the question you have to ask, is there no stopping the other things that he saw? What does that mean for Bjorn? What does that mean for him and Rolo? What does it mean for Floki? And that makes me think of the fact that Ragnar saw Bjorn at least very badly injured when having visions in the presence of a wolf at the gates of Valhalla. And then you hear that wolf cry as Bjorn eats his fish. It's all connected. Um, I don't know if it's meant to mean that these visions are accurate or not, 
like I might have suspected since I thought maybe it was Fenrir that had something to do with it. Obviously, the visions are accurate, but can they be prevented? Because almost everything that Ragnar saw in his vision at the gates of Valhalla was terrible. So we have to hope that the visions are mutable, that they can be changed. Um, and he's going to have to start giving some serious thought into that uh, before any of these other visions come to fruition. But still, away from Ragnar's vision of Aslog coming true, I mean, what that, whatever that means in terms of his other visions, what about the act itself, that brutal act of, of hitting Aslog like that? What did that mean to you? And how does that make you feel compared to the fact that he helped feed Helga and Angraboda or that he helped Helga bury Angraboda? And again, I have to cite that whole Sons of Anarchy comparison. It, it just seems like that these characters do do terrible things. And yet somehow when they get hurt, we still root for them. But I want to know how you feel about it. Let me know with your emails, your voicemails, or your tweets. These are, are just truly complex characters that it seems are okay to hate in one moment and then even feel for or root for in the next. And when Ragnar found Helga atop that hill, oh my God. And, and here's the thing. Even though Angraboda was giving some sickly coughs when Ragnar first found her in Helga, I did not see Angraboda dying coming at all. Took me totally by surprise. And when I saw Helga digging the grave, I thought she was digging it for Floki. I really did. I thought that she just thought that eventually Floki's going to be killed and I'm going to go ahead and be prepared. I have to give it up, though. I mean, the fact that it was Angraboda and the way that Travis and, and Maudhurst did that scene I mean, it was so impactfully emotional, and it almost made me forget about the Aslog thing. Again, I, I feel really weird for the fact that I feel that way, but that's what happened. My heart just sank totally into my shoes. Now, remember, I am a sap, so I'm easily emotionally manipulated. But when my heart sank, I mean, <laughs> the rest of the water that's in this body just started rising up towards my eyeballs. The writing and the acting and the direction, think about this, it made you care about a little girl that we never really even knew all that well. And again, to, to see Ragnar help Helga. This is the woman who is the wife of the person that he's given a version of Viking waterboarding to at the same time. That's what makes Ragnar so complex. The agony that he's clearly feeling for Helga because of her loss. And it's probably also fueled by the fact that he lost his own daughter, Gita. And all of that is flooding back to him. And the cutting back and forth between Floki being tortured and them is almost kind of like seeing the light side and the dark side of Ragnar's soul just kind of being borne out right in front of us to compare. And I have to say that this last scene really helped this episode 
for me a lot. Um, in fact, this 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 last scene, uh, both sides of it, Floki and uh, Helga and Ragnar. I I think that I would probably put that as a whole within my top ten uh, best scenes of the series for me. At, at very worst, best fifteen. And Maud Hurst, I mean, she has just been knocking it out of the park for the last couple of seasons, and. and her and and Travis they, again they just gave me the total feels. Uh, I was probably a little more emotional about it than most, I will admit because I am an absolute sap. But just the looks on their faces and and me thinking about Ragnar speaking to Gita's spirit a, a couple of seasons ago, it was all just way way too much for me. I completely broke. But there actually as I mentioned earlier about the food thing, they're actually can be some discussion about how this happened to Angraboda, or even about the first scene with Ragnar giving food, whether this is what happened to Angraboda or not. Our friend Christine at Cute Poison Tin, she tweeted to me asking, did Ragnar poison the food he gave Helva? Discuss it in the podcast. Personally, Christine, I don't think that he did. But I can almost guarantee you that Floki is going to think that he did. And even if he actually had poisoned the food, I don't think that Angraboda was going, that's what killed her. I think she was already too sick to be saved anyway. The way they made that cough sound and the fact that they were seemingly had really very little shelter. Um, it seems like Helga's been keeping her out in the cold like that for quite a while. So um, you could place some emphasis on the fact that Ragnar does ask how Helga dies, and Helga says, does it matter? And you can turn that around and say, well, maybe it does. And I can't really tell you whether that was supposed to be a grieving parent saying something like that, or if it was meant to be some kind of subtextual plot point for now though i'm gonna go with the former uh, rather than the latter just it was just a grieving parent when she said it doesn't matter but no matter what the truth of it is i I do think that floki will blame ragnar for angraboda's death and i I saw this tweet it's just a general tweet kind of towards the show itself uh by at mo raven 12 and I wanted to share this because I thought it was really interesting and, and possibly very accurately prophetic in itself. Maybe they had visions before the gates of Valhalla. But the tweet from at Raven 12 said, After season four, episode two, I am now more than convinced that Aslog and Floki will work together to bring Ragnar down. And that's a possibility that I probably wouldn't have thought of on my own. But it actually does make a whole lot of sense. I mean, we'll have to see, but I really like that idea. And that's all I have to say about the episode, so let me give it a rating. And man, this episode was just almost on par with last week's episode for sure. And and the only reason that I say almost is because I think maybe there was too much to keep track of in one episode. And I'll have to be honest, I'm kind of a lazy first watcher. 
So uh, I tend to get frustrated when I have to think too much when I'm watching an episode for the first time rather than just enjoying it. And that colors my rating of the episode, even if I've seen it two or three times. I know it's not the way I should be, but that's just the way I am. And like I said last week, I was being really tentative about where to set my bar uh, for rating these episodes. And last week I gave it an 8.8. And I would say that it was just slightly better than this episode. So I'm going to go 8.6 this week. I'll even say that some of the scenes this week were actually better than last week's. But I think that there were probably fewer great scenes this week. And that's why uh, my rating is just slightly lower. So 8.6 for this week. And if you don't know, if you're listening to this podcast for the first time, because we are new, uh, welcome, by the way, if you are listening for the first time. Thanks for taking the time to listen and getting this far. Uh, We do a poll at ragnarcast.wordpress.com each and every week. I put it up just a little bit before the episode airs, and I leave it up and open until generally Sunday morning, wherever you are in the world. So you have all of that time in there to think about the episode and then give it a rating yourself. And uh, the rating scale that I use is on a 1 to 10 scale, 10 being best, 1 being worst. Uh, and then I will announce the what your judgments were in regards to this episode. Here's what I got for this week. Four vote-getters. And the fourth-placed vote-getter with the least amount of votes, was 7 out of 10, 6%. Third place went to 10 out of 10, with 11%. Second place went 8 out of 10, with 39%. And 44%, and this week's winner, 9 out of 10. So thank you very much for taking the time to vote. If you did, tell your friends about the vote as well. Let them vote on the show as well the more votes we get the better sample size we have and probably the better indication of how everybody's feeling about the episode as i mentioned at the top i'm always eager to hear your input on any of the segments that we do like this poll or like the ragnarism send me your favorite quote every week or try to describe the episode in three words and send it to me three words is next So what do you mean by describing the episode in three words is what you're probably asking. Well, just that. Describe the episode in three words. Now, with so many subjects, like in this particular episode, it's really hard to come up with an overall generalizing three-word description. That I will give you. But it is okay to just pick the part of the episode that impacted you most. Which is like what I did this week. I couldn't be general this week. There was just way too much going on. But because I am an emotional sap. And because I've been rooting for Helga forever. I was heartbroken by what Helga is going through right now. And so my three words were poor, poor Helga. Man, this girl has had a tough year. I just hate what Helga is having to go through. 
I will say that Maude Hurst is just an incredible actress portraying this stuff in a way that seems real. It doesn't seem overdramatic. It just it, it just makes you feel for the poor girl. It makes you feel for Helga. Really, really was impacted by that. And like I said, I was so impacted by that that it kind of lessened the whole thing about Aslog, which I should be ranting and raving about. If any of you know my history with the Game of Thrones podcast, I quit podcasting about the show because of the Sansa rape scene. Yeah, I know. You can make fun of me of that as you wish, but I'm not changing my mind. But some of you, I'm sure, are really outraged about the fact that Ragnar beat on Aslog. And I want to hear from you. I want, I want to hear you tell me why I'm wrong to be more emotionally moved by Ragnar helping Helga in a couple of times than treating Aslog the way he did. And that brings me to our one tweet that we got this week for three words from at CutePoison10. That's again our friend Christine. Folks, tell your friends. Don't not only send in your own three words, but tell your friends to send in three words. But Christine's three words were Ragnar's angry slaps. So that's a comment on the Aslog thing. Obviously, that impacted her. And um, again, I apologize for the fact that there's some little sick little trick in my brain, evidently, that made me not feel as much for Aslog in that moment of, admittedly, total brutality as it made me feel for Helga in her loss and Ragnar in helping her during the loss. The the characters are just so complex. But again, thank you at CutePoison10 for your three words. Next, we're going to do what I call the Frigg of the Week. Frigg being the Nordic word for marriage. Um, Basically, the best coupling of the week. And that's coming up next. best couple of the week does it have to be two people no can it be two people sure uh it can be not just like a romantic thing it can be a friendship thing a broship thing a sistership thing it can be uh, a person and an idea a person and a concept uh it can be a person and an object you know like last week mine was um uh, the son of 
King Horik and, and uh, Crossbow. But this week, I've gone Uba and his super sleuthing skills. Who else would have thought to just wait by the water until he saw Bubbles? Floki's Bubbles. Actually, think about it. Uba did put it together. I mean, he knew that they had just seen him. They knew that he wasn't anywhere to be seen from there. So he knew that Floki still had to be around somewhere close. And he went to the most logical spot where a person could hide. And he found Floki. Smarter than anybody else in the room on that one. And so that's why Uba and his super sleuthing skills are my frig of the week. The best coupling of the week. Now, we did get a tweet from at CutePoison10. Our friend, Christine, who is really was the person who told me to do this podcast and I'm glad that she did because I'm really having fun doing it Um, she took what would have probably been my first choice to be perfectly honest she took Ragnar and Helga as the frig of the week the best coupling of the week because of all that they went through together Um, I thought that that was uh, very appropriate and like I said I would have picked that myself um, but I, I don't uh, you know, I, I defer to sometimes to people uh, if they get theirs out there before I get mine out there. I don't just claim the same thing because it makes it look like it wasn't their idea since I get to say mine first. Right. Uh, nonetheless, thank you, Christine, uh, for Ragnar and Helga. Um, I think that she had mentioned that one of her alternates might have been Ragnar and his staff or something like that. I, Ragnar and his staff would be a good one. Uh, I know that another podcast, um, and I can't remember the name of the podcast, but it's a good one. It's in one of the top listings. Uh, the Wild Hunt, the, uh, a Vikings podcast, The Wild Hunt. Uh, it's a No Ship Network podcast. Be sure to check it out. Anyway, they were talking about the fact that uh, Ragnar carrying his staff around uh, using the staff was very Odin like and it got me to thinking about last week when the seer said that the gods walk among us so that could really be a big point uh, further down the line I don't know how but it could be it's a great tie in the gods walk among us and then here's Ragnar walking around with a staff like Odin perhaps so Uh, at any rate we are uh at the end of the Frig of the Week section and I'll be closing up the episode right after this. This podcast did have a nice length to it. I didn't realize I had that much to say about this episode. So thanks to you for taking the time to listen to it. And let me just offer a thanks in advance for your participation in the next podcast. When you watch season four, episode three, entitled Mercy, this coming Thursday, get your thoughts together. And if you can get them to me by, say, noon on Sunday... Wherever you are in the world, be it Russia or Hawaii, if you get it to me by noon on Sunday, I will include your thoughts 
in the podcast. That includes your favorite quote, which we call the Ragnarisms around here, or your three-word description of the episode, or your frig of the week, the best coupling of the week, or if you just have general thoughts about the episode or about the podcast, I would love to hear from you. How do you contact me, you ask? Ragnarcast, that's R-A-G-N-A-R, cast, at gmail.com, or at Ragnarcast on Twitter, same spelling, or you can call 314-669-1840. All three of those ways get you onto this podcast, and remember, if you don't want to take the time to write it down now, all you have to do is remember ragnarcast.wordpress.com. That's where you can find everything, all the information you need, all the back episodes, where you can find the polls to participate. Don't forget to rate the episode. I want to hear from you. I thank you for listening. This is Matt. Take care. Contact the podcast by emailing ragnarcast at gmail.com or by calling 314-669-1840. Tweet to the podcast at ragnarcast. Please leave the podcast a written review on your podcatcher, and find all back episodes and other links at ragnarcast.wordpress.com.